I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a podcast on everything from employment to aircraft carriers. We are a bunch of policy nerds based in Lumber Bengaluru, and we like bringing fresh perspectives to Indian affairs and Indian perspectives to global affairs. Hello and welcome to All Things Policy. Today we're going to be discussing the end of a treaty that was signed during the ending of the Cold War, the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, and the profound geopolitical consequences that it might engender down the line. So I have with me Pranav and Aditya. Let's start with you, Pranav. Can you tell us a bit about what exactly this treaty means? Before we start to talk about the INF treaty, let's define what an intermediate range missile is. An intermediate range missile is any missile that has a range between 500 kilometers and 5,500 kilometers. The Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, or the INF Treaty, banned such class of missiles. And it banned three different subclasses of missiles under this broad category. It banned intermediate range ballistic missiles, it banned intermediate range cruise missiles, and it banned one kind of missiles known as shorter range ballistic missiles, which somehow enter this category of INF. So it banned three kinds of missiles, and this was historically very important because never had it been done where an entire class was actually banned. Okay, so I have two questions to follow up on that. The first is, is a slightly basic one, just to get a bit more context. What is the difference between a ballistic missile and a, and a cruise missile? And following up from that, what are the consequences of this entire class of missiles now being essentially back on the development shelf? Uh, so a ballistic missile has a ballistic trajectory, which means that it follows a one parabolic path. So it goes from point A to point B in a very predictable parabolic path. A cruise missile is very much different from that. A cruise missile is guided by GPS or it's remotely controlled and it can go in any direction. It can cross over mountains, it can avoid buildings, it can avoid hills and so on. Very simple way of putting it is a ballistic missile is like throwing a stone in the air hmm. and a cruise missile is more like a jet plane. Yes, exactly. Okay, so uh, that leads me to my second question, right? So basically, if you can now create both ballistic and cruise missiles that can go from between 500 to 5,500 kilometers, what are the consequences of both the US and Russia being allowed by international law to do that now? It matters right now because the United States withdrew from this treaty in a very strange way. It withdrew this treaty because Russia was violating the treaty. And it is alleged that Russia was violating this treaty with a new kind of missile. And the United States, for some reason, the Donald Trump administration just withdrew from this treaty without even making an effort into negotiating this uh, violation. They didn't even talk about this violation with the Russians. They just said, Russia is violating the treaty. We don't find it useful to stay in this treaty anymore. We're going to withdraw from it. And the political consequences are immense because the United States will start developing these new kinds of missiles again, especially that since its missiles were banned in 1987, uh, they'll modernize it, they'll make it much better, they'll make it more accurate, and this will create a security dilemma for the Russians. And because the Russians are out of the treaty, they will also start developing their new kinds of weapons. And both sides will have these intermediate range weapons that doesn't really threaten the United States as such, but it's very dangerous for Europe because Europe is directly under threat, the entire Europe. Just building on what Pranav said, uh, as he said, these missiles are going to be a lot more accurate today. And what that means is you don't need to put nuclear warheads on them. You can, you can put conventional warheads. And that's what the Americans say that they're wanting to do, uh, to deploy missiles like this both in the European theater and in Asia. In fact, they keep pointing out that Asia is one reason they want to get out of this treaty because uh, it, would, it would allow them to have land-based 
intermediate range missiles that can hold targets in China at risk. And the reason for this is because China has what people sometimes call this A2AD strategy, anti-access, anti-denial strategy. These are all uh, labels, but basically they are able to target assets at sea using land-based missiles. And uh, the Americans want to counter to that. Of course, there isn't a hell of a lot of land in the Pacific. So that means uh, Guam, it means possibly Japan. Okinawa. So um, you got, you mentioned that China's strategy is basically built around using intermediate range missiles uh, because it wasn't a signatory to the INF Treaty itself. So how exactly was it that the tre- this treaty between Russia and the U.S. came to be signed? Yeah, so the INF Treaty is actually one of those uh, strange treaties. It's a treaty that shouldn't have happened. It came at a time when uh, U.S.-Soviet relations were actually at a low. 1979, December, the Soviets had invaded Afghanistan. America started imposing sanctions. It started a covert war uh, against the Russians in Afghanistan. And uh, Reagan had come to power in 1981. This was not a, a good time to start talking about an arms limitation treaty, but it actually happened. So you had Paul Neitz on the American side, Yuri Kitsinsky on the Soviet side. These were both, they were both very formidable diplomats, but and somehow they had the credibility to keep this going. And uh, it was not an, it was a slog. Uh, 1983 was one of the worst years of the Cold War. Uh, it was in March of that year was Reagan's evil empire speech. And just two weeks after that, he declared st- the Strategic Defense Initiative, which was the so-called Star Wars program. In uh, September of that year, there was a very scary incident where the Soviets actually thought the Americans were about to launch nuclear missiles. And in November of that year, the Americans had a simple command post exercise, which the Soviets thought was preparation for an actual launch. So it was a really terrible time and an unusual time for an arms treaty to, arms treaty to come about. Uh, I think that it happened mainly because of the persistence of the negotiators and because in 1985, Gorbachev came to power in the Soviet Union and that really altered the political dynamic and allowed the treaty to be signed two years later. Pranav, you want to talk about some of the, that's the political context. Can you just go into some of the details of how this came about? Yeah. So uh, before 1977, the Soviet Union did not have deployable solid fuel missiles. They had liquid fuel missiles that had to be in silos and they would take time to fuel up. So there was a significant amount of time to detect these launches and take significant measures. But then the Soviets started deploying solid fuel uh, mobile missiles. So this was the SS-20, and this time NATO was really worried about it, and especially the European countries, because having this SS-20 missile would allow the Russians or the Soviets to attack any country in Europe. And this really, really worried NATO. And this was the first time in 1979 when a NATO memo actually mentioned a Russian missile, right? So this was incredibly worrisome for them. And you have to understand that If you have an intermediate-range missile, it's not going to threaten the United States. It's going to threaten NATO. It's going to threaten European countries. And the Europeans were very much worried that the United States might abandon them if it was only Europe that was getting attacked by the Soviets. It was also something that was driven by the NATO ministers, and which is the reason why the treaty sort of really happened. And it's a very significant in that sense. Again, once again, building on what Pranav said, let's just look at the political logic of these so-called intermediate-range nuclear forces in during the Cold War and why that reasoning doesn't apply today. Uh, in the Cold War, obviously, you had these two uh, pacts. You had NATO, the NATO Pact and the Warsaw Pact. These missiles were basically intended 
to target uh, places within these two pacts in Europe. So Soviet SS-20, for instance, would hit a target in Western Europe, whereas, say, a Pershing-2 missile would hit a target in Eastern Europe. And the idea was that you would contain that, that nuclear war within Europe. So you had an escalation ladder, if you'll excuse that term, where you had Americans deploying battlefield nuclear weapons. And on the top, you had uh, strategic nuclear weapons, which are basically there to end the world. And what happened was that the intermediate range missiles were actually missing for a while. And then in the 1970s, they started coming about, starting with, obviously, like, like Pranav said, with the SS-20, and then later with the Americans bringing the Pershing to. And this basically inserted this intermediate rung in the escalation to full-scale nuclear war. And by removing it, you actually made full-scale nuclear war less likely. Now, that was the big advantage in during the Cold War. Today, the Warsaw Pact doesn't exist. So if, say, an Americans have an intermediate-range nuclear weapon in Europe, so they're either going to target Russian forces that have entered a NATO-allies territory, or they're going to target Russia itself. Now, that just doesn't make any sense. The political context in which the SS-20 or the Pershing-2, these intermediate-range nuclear forces exist, doesn't exist today. So, I mean, that reasoning just doesn't make any sense. Do you think it's primarily directed against China in that case? So I think that's also a sort of, I think that some people may believe that. But again, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. One of the big caveats in the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty was that it didn't cover sea-based or air-launched missiles. Uh, the INF Treaty is extremely lopsided when you look at it. It's lopsided in favor of the United States. It happened at a time when the Soviet Union was weak. And uh, it is extremely favorable to this country. And today you have the U.S., which is in many ways a maritime power, and China, which is essentially continental. You have China heavily relying on its land-based missiles. And the U.S. is able to bring missiles to bear on Russian, on Chinese territory, excuse me, from the sea. And it just doesn't make sense to find amenable spots on land to base these missiles today. If you look at what happened when America deployed the Pershing twos in Europe in the early 80s, you had some of the biggest anti-nuclear war protests in history because people don't want to be a target. And uh, I can imagine that if Americans were to do something similar in Japan today, even if these are conventional missiles and not nuclear missiles, locals might not take to it kindly. When you build a missile base somewhere, you don't, it's not just missiles, it's a lot of military personnel. It changes the nature of that place, that neighborhood changes, and uh, people are not always uh, open to that. So given what you've said about how it doesn't really make a lot of political or even strategic sense if, if, the, if the objective is to maintain American strategic dominance, right? But it's, it's happening anyway. This arms control treaty is being abnegated anyway. Uh, which brings me to a broader question, I suppose. What's been happening over the last few years is that more and more of these Cold War era arms control treaties are being abnegated. They're being allowed to expire. They're not being renewed. What do you think the consequences of that are going to be? And what do we do about them? So I believe that, firstly, there is some logic to why these treaties are being withdrawn. And this is a very small, small incentive, right? Because the political context is different. The Russians are now using different strategies to coerce their neighbors. So one logic would be, we want to build new kinds of weapons. We want to withdraw from these old treaties because the Russians are using new tactics which are very different. And we do not have anything to sort of deter them. And we want to establish a new kind of deterrence of building new kinds of weapons. But that's a very small logic. In a broader strategic sense, 
This is more about what would happen if these nuclear missiles or even conventional missiles would be used. In a more strategic sense, deterrence would fail, you would have a consistent escalation, and it would ultimately lead to a great war, I believe so. And we have to think about that. It's not just about the small wars, the small skirmishes that's happening, but in a broader strategic sense, it does not make sense to withdraw from these treaties because the basic technologies still remain the same and you still have those incentives that Russia still has the world's largest nuclear arsenal and you want to prevent any kind of skirmish with the world's largest nuclear power. Well said. So how do you, how do you prevent this so-called, this, this great war? from breaking out. Well, first, just to go back to uh, what Pranav said, uh, the reason, short answer, why uh, arms control treaties are abnegated is simply because of changing political and technological context. So the politics uh, have changed in the sense that, uh, for instance, you have the rise of China. You also uh, have certain technologies. As we said, uh, missiles have gotten a lot more accurate, so you can put conventional warheads on them. You also have much greater intelligence surveillance reconnaissance, including from space, so you can actually, for instance, target a specific ship at sea, potentially. So these provide incentives for new weapons to be created. Uh, One of the Cold War treaties that we've actually lost is the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, which the U.S. withdrew from in 2002. The reason for that is very simple. You had uh, the Americans concerned about uh, new nuclear powers with limited arsenals, and they wanted a ballistic missile defense to uh, stop the stray missile coming from one of those countries. And by 2002, guidance systems had improved again, so you had a better chance of intercepting these missiles. So that's broadly the reason why uh, countries are withdrawing from these treaties. The question is, what do you replace them with? We've had a cycle of uh, successful arms treaties really from the early 70s to the late 80s with the INF Treaty. Uh, We've really not had a similar arms treaty at the strategic level of similar importance today. And I think that the way forward, we will have to recognize that when technologies are promising, the scope for arms control is limited. And so we will have to find uh, other means of uh, managing the dangers. One that we talk about a lot, of course, in Takshila Institution is no first-use pledges. Now, obviously, there are limitations. You know, some people might say, I'd never believe a no first-use pledge. But one of the advantages of a no first-use pledge is that it actually helps reduce tensions during a crisis and miscalculations. And this is especially so when you have proliferation of missiles, many of which may be conventional. And discrimination becomes a problem because once those missiles go into the air, it's really hard to tell what type of missile they are. So one is, of course, a no-first-use pledge. The second is, like I said, discrimination. So being very clear about which of your missiles have conventional warheads and which of your missiles have nuclear warheads. So you make them look a certain way or you communicate with potential So you uh, partly just communicating, uh, making it public. The other is simply when you do missile tests, the enemies get some idea of what the trajectory of your missile looks like, what its radar cross-section looks like. So you can broadly help reduce the problem of discrimination and by having no first-use pledges, you can uh, reduce fears that you are about to be subject to a nuclear attack. None of these fears are going to be eliminated, but you can help manage them. And I think these might be sort of the way forward for thinking about arms control now in the first half of the 21st century. I just think that, you know, during the Cold War, you had a massive arms buildup. But at the same time, what you had was something very extraordinary that we don't see today. You had leaders from two adversary countries talking in the back channels. They would 
go meet in a third country this meeting would not be recorded in the newspapers and in the media so these would not be presidents or prime prime ministers these would be the lower level diplomats the national security advisor the deputy secretary of defense and they would be meeting each other and they would talk face to face about what their concerns are they would talk about the real threats that each side faces and this is not something that happens today i just don't see that happening today and i just don't see people looking at eye to eye and saying this is my fear i fear that you will attack me with these kinds of missiles but i have only these kinds of missiles let's say it's china and china says intermediate range missiles are the only missiles that i have to defend my territory i do not have anything else and if countries just talk about these threats face to face and they sort of understand each other's perceptions i think there is a much much stronger way of implementing arms control absolutely you're right i think the time is ripe for uh, both the us china and us russia strategic dialogue some something of this sort is already going on between the us and china but i think where it's really broken down is us and russia there is a just complete lack of trust and regular communication the russian missile that the americans have claimed is violating the treaty is something that the two sides haven't really sat down and talked about enough uh, similarly the americans haven't really listened to russian fears about the inf treaty for instance the russians have this constant fear that american missile defense systems in europe are basically cloaks for intermediate range ballistic missiles but again there just hasn't been enough communication at a high enough level to discuss these fears so having such strategic communication or strategic dialogue would actually help manage these fears and reduce arms races so the broadest point that both of you are making i think is that the reason why arms control treaties are breaking down is because of a changed political and technological context which has also engendered an atmosphere of mistrust because of the way that new forms of power have been used by all of these superpowers and the best way to solve that is to agree to a broader overarching global trust framework which is to which is to have everybody commit to not using nuclear weapons first perfectly summarized thank you okay thank you guys so much for joining me we'd love to hear what you think about this chat check us out at our twitter handle at takshashila inst on our quora space all things policy For the latest analysis and research on technology, strategy, and economic affairs, visit our website at takshashila.org.in and tune in for our next episode.